The title for this morning's message is Philemon, an introduction, and the reason for that is because I am probably the least creative of all of your elders, and, uh, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to introduce the letter to Philemon. Last month, the Republic of the Philippines celebrated the 37th anniversary of the EDSA People Power Revolution. This revolution was a bloodless uprising that took place over the course of three days in February of 1986. It forced out the country's dictator, Ferdinand Marcos Sr. His 20-year iron-fisted rule was marked by martial law, thousands of extrajudicial killings, forced disappearances, as they call it, of his political rivals, tens of thousands of incarcerations, torture, and the plundering of the Philippines' economy to the tune of billions of dollars. What made this year's celebration noteworthy was that Marcos's son, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., is now the president of the Philippines. He was elected last year, and so this was the first commemoration of the revolution since he took office. Here's the headline that caught my attention. And take note of the religious language. Marcos offers reconciliation, but critics demand atonement. The article said, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. offered a hand of reconciliation to his critics and opponents as the country marked its 37th anniversary of the EDSA People Power Revolution that toppled his late father's dictatorship. The article went on to cite two of Marcos's critics. These are political critics. The first said this, We welcome the offer of reconciliation by the president, but there must first be an admission of the atrocities and the rampant human rights violations during the dark ages of martial law. Truth and atonement are conditions that must exist before there can be reconciliation. The second political critic said this, There will be no reconciliation so long as the Marcos family continues to deny their crimes, refuse to apologize, distort history, spread false versions, and hold on to remaining ill-gotten wealth. So... The truth must be told. Guilt must be admitted. An apology must be offered. Restitution and atonement must be made. And only then can those who have been wronged be reconciled, that is, have their relationship restored with the other party. There's a lot of truth in there. And I doubt the politicians are using those words with the biblical definitions that we would give it, but they're close. At the very least, we have a picture in there of what reconciliation is. Reconciliation is the restoring of estranged or alienated people or parties to friendship. It's when the person offended is restored to friendly relationships with the one who offended them. It's when the person hurt 
is restored to a friendly relationship with the one who hurt them. That's reconciliation. And it's the very thing that Paul is trying to mediate between brothers in this letter to Philemon. We just finished a 38-sermon marathon in the letter to Colossians, and it's fitting that we now jump into the book of Philemon, or the letter to Philemon, because it was written at the same time as Colossians, and you'll see some of the same characters. Philemon is the shortest letter of Paul's. It weighs in at 25 verses, and only 370, or 370 words in the English Standard Version. You'll find it at the back of your Bibles, tucked between the letter to Titus and the letter to the Hebrews. It'll be helpful, I think, for you to have your Bibles open, since we can't fit all 25 verses on the screen, at least not legibly. So we'll focus this morning on the first three verses, which is Paul's opening greeting. I only have two goals this morning, and it's simple. First, I want to introduce you to this letter. I want you to know the backstory. I want you to know the who, the when, and the where. And we'll do that as we walk through verses 1 and 2. Then for the why, I want to focus on verse 3 and the overarching theme of this letter, which is reconciliation. So, the who, the when, and the where, verses 1 and 2. Then the why in verse 3. And we'll, if we can do that, then we'll be on solid footing for the rest of our study. We'll spend about three more weeks in this letter. Let's begin by reading again the first two verses. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. This part of Paul's opening greeting is typical of a first century letter. They usually included three things, the name of the sender, the name of the recipient, and then a greeting. Paul follows the same format, naming himself as the sender. There's nothing out of the ordinary there. But notice how Paul de describes himself. This man is the apostle to the Gentiles. He wrote 13 of the 27 books we have in the New Testament. All 13 are letters. In two of those letters, he identifies himself as Paul with no description. In one, he describes himself only as a slave of Jesus Christ. But in nine of his letters, he asserts his position as an apostle. This is the only letter where Paul opens simply by calling himself a prisoner. So whatever else Paul is doing here in this letter, he is not flexing his apostolic authority. This is a very personal letter. It's an appeal from a fellow believer to a fellow believer. In fact, Paul tells Philemon that in verses 8 and 9. He says, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. This is a personal letter from a fellow believer to a fellow believer. 
I think there's a lesson in that, a mini lesson in there for leaders. If God has entrusted you with authority as an employer or as an elder or even as a parent, be careful of only exercising your authority by flexing your position. That's very short-sighted. You might ensure obedience for a time by ordering people to do what's required of them. Sometimes that's necessary. But wisdom will often prefer to make room for obedience from the heart. For the sake of love, then, leaders, try Paul's approach. Appeal from one believer to the heart of another. And note now that Paul is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I love this about the Apostle Paul. Never once does he say that he is a prisoner of Rome. This man is a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and that's only how he sees himself. His imprisonment is no accident. It has a divine purpose. Yes, he's a prisoner of Rome, but Paul looks beyond the immediate cause and looks to the ultimate cause. It was the sovereign Lord of the universe who orchestrated his arrest. Man meant it for evil, and the Lord meant his imprisonment for good. Paul is in prison to bring the gospel to Rome. He's there to bear witness to Christ among the guards, to win a slave to Christ, and to write a little letter to a man named Philemon. So God's people for the next 2,000 years would know something more of God's grace and peace through reconciliation. Paul was confident that his Lord was up to 10,000 good and glorious things in his imprisonment. And what a comfort for us to be loved by and to serve a master who is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the small things. He is sovereign over the major catastrophes. So when your dishwasher leaks and ruins your kitchen floor, when the Silicon Valley bank fails and your money is gone, when the diagnosis is cancer and there is no medical hope, you can rest in this truth. The sovereign Lord of the universe knows what he is doing. All evil is on a leash. The Lord determines how far it may go, and however far that may be, his child can rest confident that everything the Lord does is for his glory and for the good of his children. Paul knew that, so he calls himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He mentions the details of this imprisonment five times in this short little letter. He mentions it first here in the opening greeting. Then he mentions it in verse 9 where, again, he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus and where we also learn that he's an old man now. The year is around A.D. 60, so Paul is probably in his mid-50s. He's an old man like me. Feels old at least. He mentions his imprisonment in verse 10, where we learn that during this imprisonment, which was likely in Rome, he led a slave named Onesimus to Christ and became his spiritual father. We'll introduce Onesimus shortly. 
He mentions it in verse 13, where he says that his imprisonment was for the gospel. And then he mentions it in verse 23, where we learn that Epaphras, you might remember him from Colossians, Epaphras was also in prison with him. So Paul is the primary author of this letter. His co-writer, as we see here in verse 1, is a man named Timothy. Paul describes him as our brother. The name Timothy, and there's a reason I'm telling you what these names mean. The name Timothy is a combination of two Greek words, Tima and Theos. Tima means honor or reverence. Theos means God. So this God-honoring young man was a third-generation believer. His mother was Jewish, and his father was Greek. He was Paul's friend, his traveling companion, and his co-worker in ministry. He was also the co-writer of five other New Testament letters. Paul and Timothy, our brother, then, are the senders of this letter. Now, to whom were they writing? Paul lists three people and a church. This letter is primarily addressed to a man named Philemon. Paul lists his name first, and that's important. Philemon is a common name, and it means affectionate one. But this is the only place in the New Testament where he is found. Almost all that we know of this man comes from this little letter that has his name on it. We'll learn more about him next week, but let me say a few things to introduce him. Philemon was a Christian. Most scholars would agree that he became a believer under Paul's ministry. That's what Paul means when he reminds him in verse 19 that Philemon owes him his own self. We know that Paul had not visited Colossae, so it's possible that he and Philemon met and became friends during the three years that Paul was ministering in the nearby city of Ephesus. Philemon was Paul's fellow worker. He was Paul's co-worker. Paul uses that term for brothers and for sisters who labored with him in spreading the gospel. So Philemon was Paul's co-worker. And third, it appears that Philemon was wealthy and generous. We infer that from the fact that he owned a slave. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. And that he allowed a church to meet in a house that he owned. So that is Philemon, the primary recipient of this letter. In addition to him, Paul adds a woman named Apphia, a man named Archippus. He calls Apphia our sister and Archippus, our fellow soldier. That term fellow soldier is only used of two other people in the New Testament. It probably means that he was a leader in this church. You might remember Archippus from the last sermon that Josh preached in Colossians 4. In Paul's final greeting to the Colossians, he told them to deliver a message to Archippus. It's Colossians 4.17. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So, if we read between the lines here, it seems likely that Archippus was an elder in the church that met in Philemon's house, Abphia was probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus was probably their son. 
We can't be entirely certain of that, but it does fit the evidence, and that's what church tradition tells us. The final recipient of this letter, though, is the church, the church that meets in your house or the church that is in your house. The word your is singular, and it refers back to Philemon, which is another reason we believe this is a family. This letter, then, is to Philemon, to his wife, Apphia, to their son, Archippus, and to the church, probably a small church, in their house. That's the who, the when, and the where. Now for the why. Why did Paul write this letter? Well, here's the story that best fits the evidence, and I'll tell it to you in two parts using the play on words that Paul uses in the letter. Part one, useful turns useless. Philemon, this wealthy and generous Christian in the city of Colossae, owned a slave named Onesimus. This is the same Onesimus we met in Colossians 4.9, where he's mentioned alongside Philemon's son, Archippus. The name Onesimus was a common name for a slave in the first century, and it means useful. Roman slave owners would often discard the names of their new slaves and give them new names. It was common to give names to slaves that represented a characteristic or a virtue, like Felix, which means lucky, or Melissa, which means bee, or as we see here, Onesimus, which means useful. Apparently, this useful slave Onesimus ran away from his master and stole from him. That's why in verse 17 and 18, Paul appeals to Philemon to take him back, to be reconciled, and then he offers to personally pay whatever Onesimus owed. The useful slave became useless, at least to Philemon, he was useless. At this point, we should probably say a few things about slavery in the Roman Empire. Slavery, slavery was an everyday part of society. In the days of the expanding republic, there were large numbers of prisoners of war, so that meant that slaves were very inexpensive because there were lots of them. But by the first century, the empire began to stabilize and there were fewer prisoners of war, so homebred slaves became the main supply. That made them more expensive, which is one of the reasons we think Philemon was wealthy. In the city of Rome where Onesimus fled, it's estimated that about one in every five residents was a slave. That means there may have been as many as 175,000 slaves in the city of Rome at this time. So it would have been a good place for Onesimus to hide. Ephesus, closer city, much smaller, was probably too close to Colossae for Onesimus to remain undetected. When the subject of slavery surfaces, though, a lot of teachers are quick to run to the Old Testament and claim that slavery looked very different under Jewish law and was far more humane than slavery in America. And that may have been true at times for ancient Israel, but that certainly wasn't the reality in the Roman Empire. Slavery was a brutal 
institution in many, if not most, cases. Slaves were considered personal property. They belonged to their owners. They were like tools. Slaves could purchase their freedom, true, but uh, under Roman law, but it was a serious crime for a slave to run away, and the punishment could be severe. If the slave wasn't executed for it, he could have his forehead branded uh, to mark him as good for nothing or to indicate the crime that he had committed. The custom was to inscribe letters in the slave's forehead that denoted his offense. So a runaway slave might be branded with an F, which stood for the Latin word fugitive. A thief, on the other hand, might be branded with the letters F-U-R to indicate that he was a thief. It was also a crime to harbor a runaway slave, which might shed some light on the position that Paul found himself in as he developed this relationship with Onesimus. So the question remains, what does this letter tell us about slavery? What's Paul saying? Is it wrong? Or does Paul merely accept it as a fact of life? It's a fascinating topic, and all I can do is scratch the surface and then leave it to you to continue digging. In our country, this question was hotly debated for obvious reasons during the enactment of the Fugitive Slave Acts of 1793 and 1850. These were laws that tried to ensure that runaway slaves would be captured and returned even if they were captured in a free state or free territory. Since the letter to Philemon was about a runaway slave, both sides tried to use it to prove their points. This makes for some fascinating reading. Those who were more or less pro-slavery would argue that Paul never explicitly condemns the owning of slaves. In fact, they'd argue that no New Testament author explicitly condemns it. They just accepted it and gave instructions on how Christian masters were to treat their slaves and how slaves, Christian slaves, were to treat or obey their masters. In the case of Philemon, Paul encounters a runaway slave and simply returns him to his rightful owner. Abolitionists, on the other hand, argued that while Paul did return a slave to his owner, he he only did it because Philemon was a believer. He was a Christian. And Paul specifically told Philemon, this, is per, this perhaps is why Onesimus was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. So Paul was simply reuniting brothers. Those who were pro-slavery would then object and insist that Onesimus was still Philemon's slave. In fact, they would point out the fact that Onesimus wanted him to stay with Philemon forever, and the debate went on. So how do we address this in the 21st century? Well, the points they were making in 1793 and 1850 are essentially the same today. The facts haven't changed. God's word hasn't changed. It's true the New Testament does not explicitly condemn, condemn slave ownership. And yes, Paul did return Onesimus to his owner, but it's also true that he appealed to Philemon to take him back as a brother in Christ. And that's significant. It's significant because if the Christian slave owner treated his slaves as brothers in Christ and as fellow image bearers, every evil 
Every bit of oppression, every violent act, every unjust action that makes the institution of slavery, slavery would essentially be abolished. Slavery as we know it would simply not exist. The relationship between Onesimus and Philemon would be a beautiful, brotherly friendship full of love and respect. So Paul here is simply sowing seeds that would eventually undo the very foundation of the institution of slavery. All that to say the debate about the Bible and slavery will go on. But I believe that Paul was sowing seeds that would inevitably result in the undoing of this institution. Now, part two of our story. Useless becomes useful. Onesimus is on the run, hiding in the big city of Rome. In God's providence, Onesimus meets the Apostle Paul. We have no idea how that happened. I like to think that Onesimus hit rock bottom. Life on the streets of Rome as a fugitive slave would have been hard. And he may have known through his master and others in the church that Paul was in prison somewhere in Rome. Maybe Onesimus hits rock bottom, comes to his senses, and then seeks out the apostle. We don't know. But in God's providence, Onesimus meets Paul and comes to faith in Christ. And Paul describes the conversion of Onesimus in three ways in this little letter. One, as Paul becoming his spiritual father. Verse 10. Two, by his play on words in verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, Philemon. But now... Onesimus is indeed useful to you and to me. And three, by asking Philemon to take Onesimus, this is verse 13 and, uh, 15 and 16, to take Onesimus back forever as a beloved brother. Useless, encountered God's grace, and became truly useful. So, why did Paul write this letter? He wrote it to appeal to Philemon to forgive and to be reconciled with his runaway slave who formerly was of no use to him, but now by the grace of God, he was indeed useful. Now we're primed for verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This sentence marks the end of Paul's greeting. And it's easy just to skip past these words as if they're just Paul's super spiritual way of saying, hello guys. But there's a lot more going on here than that. This is a profoundly theological greeting and it lays the foundation for the rest of his letter. Paul combines the uniquely Christian greeting of grace to you with the Jewish greeting of peace. And together, they are the sum of everything that follows. So if you want the 20,000-foot view of what Philemon is about, in a sentence, this is it. This letter is about God's grace to his people, which brings peace with God and peace with others. This little greeting is profoundly theological. To see that, let's first define grace. Here's the definition I use. Grace is God's goodness overflowing in empowering love to the ill-deserving. 
Grace is God's goodness overflowing in empowering love to the ill-deserving. Let me break that down. Grace is God's goodness. When, when theologians try to describe something of the attributes or characteristics of God, they sometimes use two big categories, God's greatness and God's goodness. We attribute to God's greatness things we know of Him, like He is everywhere present. He has all knowledge of all things, all things that ever were, all things that are, all things that ever will be, and all things that ever could be. He is supremely powerful. He is immutable, constant, always the same, and never changing. And to God's goodness, we attribute things like His love, His mercy, His patience, His long-suffering, and this attribute here, His grace. So when you think of the grace of God, put it in the big category of God's goodness. Grace is God's goodness, and it overflows in empowering love to the ill-deserving. God's grace is active and empowering. That means it is life-giving. We see this empowering aspect of grace in at least two interconnected ways in the New Testament. First, grace conveys the power of life to creatures dead in their sins. Grace has the power to give life to spiritually dead hearts. That is no small power. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Then Paul interjects, by grace you have been saved. So when you were dead in your sins, what was it that made you alive? It was the life-giving power of God's grace. Grace is active and it is empowering. But grace is not only for salvation past tense. We are dependent upon the power of God's grace every day to live the Christian life. That's the second way we see the power of grace in the scriptures. Grace conveys the power for every good work. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, catch this, catch each one of these, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What does the grace of God give you all sufficiency for? In other words, what does grace empower you to do? To abound in every good work. You know that Paul swam in that river. By the grace of God, he said, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Jonathan Edwards had this to say about the empowering nature of God's grace. If any have a notion of grace, that it is something put into the heart, there to be confined and lie dormant, 
and that its influence doesn't govern the man, or that it has no tendency or power to bring about holy transformation of life, they have quite a wrong notion of it. So grace is God's goodness, overflowing and empowering love to to the ill-deserving. And Paul is simply captivated by this grace. He wants it for Philemon. He wants it for Abphia, for Archippus, and for the entire church. Now, what do those aspects of grace have to do with what follows in this letter? What does it have to do for Paul's appeal to Philemon to take back his slave as a brother? What does grace have to do with reconciliation? Let me show it to you. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. And you're probably laughing. We can't stay out of the book of Colossians, can we? Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 19 through 22. If you remember from our study, this is the Christ hymn. Paul says this, For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven. Stop. Christ is the Lord of creation. All things were made through him, and he sustains all things by the word of his almighty power. But creation fell. Sin slithered in and shattered creation's relationship with its creator. The creature rebelled against His creator and opened a humanly impassable chasm between them. That's why sinners need reconciliation. There is no longer peace in this relationship. In the Christ hymn, we see a great reconciliation in the offing. We see Christ as not only the Lord of creation, but the Lord of the new creation. Hostile relationships are being restored. All things are being reconciled to Christ. His enemies are defeated, and all that remains is being reconciled to Him. But how can that be? How can there be reconciliation without things having been made right? Think about the critics and what they said last month about Ferdinand Marcos Jr., There can be no reconciliation, they said, until there has been atonement for the sins of his family. No reconciliation, no peace apart from atonement. Back to the Christ hymn. In Christ, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. There it is. The cross of Christ is where the atonement was made and where reconciliation was secured. It was the precious blood of Christ shed for rebels that atones for the sin that alienated them from him. This is amazing grace. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. First, And foremost, then, the grace Paul had in mind here is the grace of the cross by which sinners must be reconciled to their creator. And that reconciliation happens 
when they trust what Christ did there, trusting only in that and in nothing else, that only is sufficient to save them from the penalty, from the power, and ultimately from the presence of the sin that separated them from their Creator. For your sin and your rebellion against your Creator, you deserved death and hell. But the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. You'll see it clearly in the next verse. Verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So grace brings reconciliation, or or to borrow from Paul's greeting, grace from God brings peace with God. It has the power to bring vertical peace. God's goodness overflowing in empowering love to ill-deserving people brings peace with God through the blood of Christ. The once dead come to life. The once useless become useful. But there's more. The peace that grace brings is not only vertical. It is also horizontal. Remember, grace conveys the power for every good work. And this has a profound impact upon all of our relationships, especially relationships between believers. How could it not? When you experience the blood-bought grace that reconciles you to God, it flows out into your relationships with one another. When you embrace the crucified Christ and by God's free grace are reconciled with him, you are changed at the very core of your being. Your heart is transformed. What you love and what you desire is changed and is continuing to be transformed. And transformed hearts lead to transformed relationships. Everything changes. Not immediately. There's still brokenness in our relationships. It's not immediately and not perfectly until the day we step into glory. But there is a radical transformation at the level of the heart that transforms relationships especially relationships among believers. The slave is now your brother. So, as we explore reconciliation over the next three weeks, keep that in mind. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is the very foundation upon which all true reconciliation is built vertical and horizontal. So grace to you and peace. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for these words. Father, we, we recognize that your grace to us your grace that overflowed to us in love is what we do not deserve and what we cannot earn. So, Father, we just marvel 
at how amazing your grace is and how amazing it is that we are at peace with you. And so, Father, I pray that that reality would radically change our relationships with one another. Father, I pray this morning that you would convict us, convict us of sin, convict us of relationships where we have not forgiven and where reconciliation is possible, we have not sought it out. And Father, I pray that uh, over the coming weeks, as we dig deeper into reconciliation, that you would continue to convict our hearts and heal and restore relationships among us. Father, do this for your glory. We ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.